All right, I would trust that you're already in Ephesians, so let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, there's, there's so much to be grateful, Lord, for. We thank you for the testimonies that we heard tonight, Lord, how you've worked in the lives of those that are here, Lord, doing exceedingly abundantly beyond we could ever think. There's a testimony, Lord, to your power, to your love, to who you are, to your glory. We pray tonight that um, that we would have soft hearts, that we'd have listening ears, Lord, that you would be glorified, Lord, in, in all that we all that we sing, the word that is preached, prayers that we pray, Lord. May it all be to your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> One of the underlying questions that we've been asking the youth group this year is along the lines of apologetics, but one of them is, 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 why do you believe the Bible? Because I think if you ask a lot of people, you ask, do you believe the Bible? It's very quickly to put your hand in the air and say, yeah, I believe the Bible. It's a little bit, it can be a little bit more challenging to answer the question, why do you believe the Bible? Right? So we looked at the scientific accuracies that are in the Bible. We looked at historical accuracies. We looked at fulfilled prophecy. We looked at all this, a lot of scriptures where Jesus himself showed that he believed the Bible. And it made me think about a, uh, it was essentially a video. So Cedarville University, where, where Ben, our son, goes to school, um, they have chapels once a day during the week. And a year ago in Easter, there was essentially two of the Jewish believing professors believing Christians that are Jewish were doing a reenactment of the Seder. It's not something I'd ever seen before. Right, so it's a it's the Passover meal. It's what we see as the Lord's Supper, and they were reenacting it. And one of them was a professor. His name was Doctor Shore, and he said he grew up in a conservative Long Island Jewish home. And he said, "What has now given him the greatest encouragement that Jesus is who he said he is, which is his Messiah?" He said that because every little thing that happens in the Seder service, which is the, Jesus, didn't miss anything. He said, I'm a statistician. This doctor showed him, I'm a statistician. And based on that, I would have expected Jesus to miss something. And he said, he, Jesus, missed absolutely nothing. He said, for me, that's why I believe the Bible. I thought, that's a great testimony, right? That, that's a great testimony of, again, of why we believe the Scriptures, why we say that we believe this book. And even though the, the main message tonight isn't about this bringing together of Jews and Gentiles. It is a major theme in the book of Ephesians. It's something we're definitely going to look at, look at tonight. So, again, just a, a quick background. You know, we, we open up a book. It's not like we're working through it tonight. It's, a, it's, a, it's one message. Ephesus was located in what today would be Turkey. So it was on the coast of Turkey. And Ephesus was a big city. This was a city like they would say roads went everywhere. There was roughly, they estimate around 250,000 people that lived in the city of Ephesus. So this is a big, this is a big city, right? It was a major place of commerce and trade. Um, one of the, the, the buildings that was there was the Temple of Artemis. We read about that in, a lot in the book of Acts. And this temple, which was the center of pagan worship in this ancient world, was a, a massive building. It was 418 feet by 239 feet. It had 127 columns that was 60 feet high and 6 feet in diameter. So if you think about the ancient world, that's a, that's a big place, right? And like I said, this is the center of pagan worship, uh, certainly in Ephesus and in the surrounding area. 
made of marble, cypress wood, paneling, cedar roof beams. So that's, that's a little picture of Ephesus. There's a little picture where this, this church developed, right? As we walk through the book of Acts, we can see a number of things that are happening, and I, and I point out a few just to show the people that were associated with Ephesus. Paul had spent a, a year and a half in Corinth, and in Corinth he met Aquila. We all recognize Aquila and Priscilla. So Aquila, uh, being a devout Christian, um, they had met in Corinth, Paul, Priscilla and Aquila, they went on a boat over to Ephesus. Paul only stayed a couple of weeks, they think. Aquila and Priscilla stayed there longer. Paul uh, uh, went back to Antioch. Eventually he left there. He started his third missionary journey, uh, and that's when he ended up in Ephesus. And he was in, Paul was in Ephesus for three years, right? Three years, that, that's a long time. That's the, longest play, that's the longest church that Paul had spent his time in, was three years in Ephesus. We also know that uh, Timothy had spent time in, in, in Ephesus. Um, in First um, Timothy 1.3, Paul says, Remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. We know Timothy was also a pastor in Ephesus. Uh, and another important person related to Ephesus was Apollos. Right? We can read about Acts 18. says, A certain Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. Right, so I point these out because it tells us that Ephesus was a very well-taught church. They had Aquila, they had Apollos, they had Timothy, and they had Paul. So this was a, this was a well-taught church in this city. Which leads to another unique aspect of Ephesians. right? And it's the fact that Ephesians, unlike the other letters that we have, whether it's to Colossae, um, to, um, to, to, to Rome, or Thessalonica, Philippi, what's different about Ephesus is that we received a direct word about that church from the Lord, the Lord himself, right? We, we know that's in Revelation. So keep your finger in Ephesians and turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. And as, as you're doing that, we know that in, in this section of Revelation is where the Lord is speaking directly to the seven churches, one of them being in Ephesus. And I'll let you get there. Our Lord is confronting several of these churches regarding the effects of allowing paganism practices to infiltrate their church and what the results of that are going to be. So this is going to be instructive, I hope, for our look into the letter of Ephesians tonight. So as I read this, it says, verse 1, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds seven stars in his hand, in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. It's clearly our Lord who's speaking. right? I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. This was a strong commendation from our Lord, right? This is, in this aspect, he was approving of the things they were doing. It's a picture of a solid church. They persevered through hardships and persecution, and they would not tolerate evil men in their assembly. And not only that, they would not tolerate false teachers. It says, you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. The only way you can discern error is to know the truth, right? We hear that a lot. 
They had been taught well, and they remained steadfast in their discernment. If a teacher came in with a message that was not the message that they had been delivered, they exposed them as a false prophet, as a false teacher. Judaizers and false teachers were everywhere. The only teachers who were welcome in Ephesus were those who were faithful to the word of God. Verse 3 says, And you have persevered, perseverance, and you have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. We are told that this small group of Christian believers in this huge city endured. And why did they persevere and endure? He says, for my name's sake. Everything they did, they did it all in the name of Christ. If you look down at verse 6, it says, Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. They were even commended for standing against the Nicolaitans. And we're not exactly sure who they were, but the Ephesian people that were here in this letter, they know who they are. They could have been part of the, 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 the cult of the temple, but they were rejected by these Ephesian, uh, Ephesian Christians. If we back up to verse 4 and 5, our Lord says, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you, and I will remove your landstand out of its place, unless you repent. You have left your first love. Our Lord is saying your heart is no longer in the right place. You're doing the right things, but with the wrong motivation. They're not, work, they're not working and toiling for the love of Christ and for his glory. The reality is that's a danger for all of us. You know, we can become very much like the church. We work hard, we persevere, we endure, we know the truth, we have discernment, we hate sin, we're capable of exposing error, but the danger is to leave our first love. And the church at Ephesus had been given the privilege of the best teachers, and they followed the word, but they left their love of Christ. So let's turn back to Ephesians. We'll go back to, to chapter 1. It take, this letter takes us back about 30 years, because it was about 30 years after this letter to Ephesians was written that John penned Revelation, about 30 years. If you ask my wife, you know I debated about this all week. But I've decided that I, I would like to read the first three chapters of this letter. And we don't very often read long passages of Scripture like this. We have different versions. Sometimes it can be a little challenging. Sometimes our mind can wander. But I want, I'm, I'm, I'm praying that you will see Jesus Christ in this letter. This is a lofty letter. This is a lofty letter. And because we want to maintain our love for Christ... That's what I want to do. So we'll read the first three chapters, and then we'll focus in on Paul's prayer at the end of it, his prayer for the Ephesians. So beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us 
In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore remember, that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly Far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, contained in the ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body 
to God through the cross by having, by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose, which he carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. As we look back at this prayer, the prayer begins in verse 14. It has an opening address, verses 14 and 15. Paul is making a request on behalf of the Ephesian believers in verse 16. His reason for the request starts in verse 17, and the purpose for his request is in the second half of 17 through 19. So as we look at this prayer, beginning in verse 14, Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So we ask the question, for what reason? For this reason, it goes back 
to the first verse of chapter 3 initially. And we see there again, for this reason, which brings us back further. But this reason is ultimately that bringing together of Jews and Gentiles into one family. So it's, it's made clearer in chapter 3, but turn back to chapter 2 and we'll see where Paul begins with this. Chapter 2, verse 15 says, By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two, the Jews and the Gentiles make the two, into one new man, thus establishing peace. It might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. If we drop down to verse 10, we'll see the purpose. Why did God do this? Why is he putting so much in this letter talking about bringing the Jews and the Gentiles together? Verse 10 says, in order that, it's so that, purpose, in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The manifold wisdom of God. This is the exercise of God's power and love to bring the Jews and the Gentiles together in the church. This great mystery of God, which was hidden in ages past, verse 9, a mystery that could never be understood by human reasoning, It was God's eternal purpose, verse 11, to unite believing Jews and believing Gentiles into one new body. So if we go back to the beginning of Paul's prayer, which is chapter 3, verse 14, he says, I bow my knees before the Father. This is simply showing great reverence by Paul. Utter humility before the Father. This is Paul worshiping the Father. I think it's easy for us to see that word father. And we could spend all night talking about father. And I thought about it. We, there's so many things that we say sometimes that we don't stop and meditate on or think that much about. Father is one of those. Right? We're going we're to spend a lot of time back and forth in this letter because Paul encompasses a lot in his prayer. So if we go back uh, to Paul's uh, initial introduction, which in chapter 1, Chapter 1, chapter 3, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He is our Father. And the question is how? How is he Father? Our Father. Paul answers that. Verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in him, he predestined us, verse 5, as adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Adopted. That's how we are part of his family. That's how we can call him father. There's a lot, there's a lot more that we say about that, but that's, that's father. That's who Paul is praying to. Why? Why did he predestine us? Why did he adopt us? Verse 6, to the praise of his glory. That's what we want to keep remembering, to the praise of his glory. He said over and over again in this Lord, to God's glory. God adopted us through Christ for his glory and his glory alone. Not because he looked down and saw some good in us, because there wasn't any. Right? Not that he could see some good intentions in us, but for his glory and his glory alone.
Back in Paul's prayer again, chapter 3, verse 15, expands on why God is worthy of Paul's worship. Verse 15 says, From whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. God is the sovereign creator. He has the ability to create and therefore to name every family in heaven and on earth. It is to this sovereign creator, to the one who kept hidden the mystery of the church, to whom Paul now prays. His introduction and and now his prayer. In verse 16, we see the request that Paul makes on behalf of the Ephesian believers. Verse 16 says that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. We can break this verse up and say, Paul is requesting that God would grant you to be strengthened in the inner man. Grant you to be strengthened in the inner man. The you that Paul is referring to are the believers in Ephesus. They are the saints. In Paul's open address, he says that the letter was to the saints who are at Ephesus. And I recognize that we understand that saints is referring to believers, but much of the world does not understand that. They're confused because of the man-made definitions of what a saint is. And I think it's worthy of taking a look at this. A saint is not someone with special abilities, special powers, special accomplishments. A saint is a redeemed, born-again believer in Jesus Christ. And because there's so much confusion about this, let's take a look at how Paul, let's take a look at this. Turn back to chapter 2 again, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 again. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, And you were dead, you were spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest." But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that, in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it not of yourselves, is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. Paul says you, every single one of them, every single listener of this letter, every single one tonight that is listening to Paul's exhortation, every single one of us lived in the lusts of our flesh. We were separate from God. We were without hope, Paul says. But God made us alive together with Christ. Why again did he do this? Verse 7 says, In order that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's why. It's for his his glory. That's why he did it. There's nothing to do with some special anything other than God. We go back to the prayer again. We look at verse 16. Paul is requesting that God would grant to the saints according 
to the riches of his glory. Paul is about to make a request. It's on the behalf of the Ephesian believers, and he's basing his request on who God is, according to the riches of his glory. All the attributes that make up who God is, and that is his glory. The request to be strengthened with power through the Spirit. Strengthening, we've, we've heard it tonight, strengthened is a word meaning to grow or to become strong or mighty. Or mighty. Power, which is dunamis, which means just that power or ability. So the idea here is to be mightily empowered through his spirit. The key point here is this strengthening is passive. It's something that's done to a believer. Right? It's not anything we can do on our own. We cannot strengthen ourselves spiritually at all on our own. It has to come from God. This is passive. So Paul's request is for God's people to be strengthened by his power by means of the Holy Spirit. And next we see the strength is focused on the inner man. One of Paul's terms, in the inner man. Paul uses this phrase to refer to a person's heart. It's the inner person. It's the core. It's the center of a person. It can be their mind as well. It's the innermost part. And it can only be strengthened with God's power. Even a believer is unable to strengthen his inner person by his own efforts. He can only be strengthened by God's power. If Paul thought we could strengthen ourselves on our own, he would have given this to us as an imperative command. Do this. He didn't do that. He put it in a prayer to God because he knows it has to come from God. Paul is asking God to provide what every one of us needs to be strengthened in our hearts. So Paul's request is again that God would grant the Ephesian believers to be strengthened in the inner man. Verse 17 starts with the reason. Why is he praying this? Paul, why is he making this request? Verse 17 says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The key word here is dwell, made up of two Greek words. The first is oikeo, meaning to live or to take up one's abode. The second is kata, which in this context means down. Therefore, dwell can be translated to live or to settle down or to remain. It's a permanent dwelling. It's as opposed to something that's coming and going. This is a permanent dwelling. Therefore, Paul is requesting that God, through his power, would strengthen the inner man of the believers so that Christ may settle down and remain in their hearts. And this being accomplished by faith. It's important to, to, to recognize that this is not Christ dwelling at the time of conversion. When you, when you first become a believer. This is, this is dwelling. This is Christ remaining in your hearts. And remember, in Revelation, we talked about leaving your first love. Right? This is Paul's prayer that Christ would remain in their hearts. Now, the purpose of Paul's prayer is the second half of verse 17 through 19. <clears throat> it says, starting in 17b, and that you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Paul wants the Ephesians to understand this love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. So he begins with that you being rooted and grounded in love. Let's consider the word love, which occurs both here and 17 and then 19. So you'll see love in verse 17. You'll see love in verse 19. Grammatically, we can see that these are referring to two different expressions of love. In verse 19, 
It's clearly stating the love of Christ. And there is no clarification in verse 17. And therefore, uh, it, it stands reasonable that this love is referring to the love, the believer's love. First, the believer's, first it's the believer's love towards Christ, which results in a love towards each other. We hear this often, we heard it again this morning, that we have to have a vertical relationship with Christ before we can have uh, an appropriate horizontal relationship with, with each of us. We must love Christ first before we can really love each other. And I'd like to look at a passage on this. So let's turn, keep your finger here, let's turn to 1 John chapter 4. Right, so 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 9, says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In the words of Ephesians, when our inner man is strengthened by the Holy Spirit, allowing Christ to abide deep down in us, and we know that Christ loved us with a perfect love, then we are able and in fact strengthened by God's power to love others with the love of Christ. Back to Ephesians. Back to Paul's prayer in Ephesians. Chapter 3 again. Verse 17 says, The love we have, verse 17, is rooted and grounded. It finds its firm foundation, if you will, where we understand what God, when we understand what God has done for us. When we understand what God's done for us, that's that's a firm foundation. Right? Paul has given this to us as well. We return back to chapter 1. Paul's letter, back to chapter 1, we'll look at where this firm foundation, where this grounding comes from. We read it, but here again, verse 4, what's the first thing? He chose us before the foundation of the world. Verse 5 says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Verse 7, He redeemed us through His blood. Verse 11, he gave us an inheritance. In verse 13, he sealed us in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Is that not why we love Christ? For everything that he did for us on the cross? Even to the point of death. And because of this great love buried deep down inside us, which is rooted and grounded in all that God the Father has done through Christ, that they, verse 18, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Comprehend simply means to understand, that they may be able to understand with all the saints. With all the saints, this is making reference to the fact that we do not learn, we do not comprehend, we do not understand deep spiritual truths in isolation. Right? This is the design of the church. Our growth is accomplished with and through other believers. We've talked about it tonight. This weekend has been a roller coaster of emotions, right? 
whether I should, but I'd like to share with you a text that, Randy, uh, that Terry sent to the deacons yesterday morning. Terry was in Atlanta. He sent us a text, a text, and this is what it said. He said, thank you for your ministry, guys. God is honored through it, and the family of Christ is strengthened. Is that not what this is all about? That God takes the events of what's happening in our family, and he takes that love for Christ, and he buries it in our heart through strength, through his power, through his spirit. It's all from him. He's building us up. That's exactly what he's doing. He's strengthening us. He's strengthening our inner man. If I, if I took a, a poll tonight, I, I know that we're all, our inner man has been strengthened by this. We see God working. We see the love that he has for us. Verse 18, it says, again, comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Many have tried to provide various interpretations of this. You know, it could mean wisdom of God. It could be the power of God. It could be the love of Christ. They all tend to fit in the context. But it seems that the love of Christ fits the context best because these, these are spatial dimensions that fit with the foundation metaphor that was rooted and grounded. So the love of Christ also fits uh, with the next verse, verse 19, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. knowledge. It's very similar language. The love of Christ is so great that it's, it's ultimately incomprehensible. Paul ends his prayer with a doxology. We looked at it a bit tonight. It's doxology, Paul's prayer. Uh, it's his praise to the God that he's praying to. It's his praise. Verse 20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And as I close, we've, we've all heard the story about the church who had, the message hanging, had this message hanging on their sign, and it read, We preach Christ crucified. Right? And over time, the message became, We preach Christ. And then ultimately, as time went on, and they slipped farther and farther away from their first love, we could say, their message simply became, We preach. What if we make this a little bit more personal? And we could say, My walk is by faith, in Christ Jesus. If we take our focus off Christ, if we stop praying for each other to be strengthened by power in the inner man, instead of saying, my walk is by faith in Christ Jesus, it could become, my walk is by faith. And one day, if we were to look just horizontally, we could be singing the right hymns, saying the right things, serving the needs of each other, and those around us, and our statement could simply be this, my walk. We know from the words of our Lord himself that this is exactly what happened to the church in Ephesus. We here at Fellowship Bible Church are blessed with so many opportunities to study God's word with each other, to, co to pray corporately together. Let's take all that the Lord blesses us with and make sure that we see and love Christ in it all whether it's in Romans on Sunday mornings, and we love Christ vertically so that we can horizontally love each other without hypocrisy. Whether it's 
looking at the love of Christ in Philippians, or there's to look at the love of Christ in Colossians, or in the Sermon on the Mount, or in respectable sins. Let's make sure we all put the love of Christ first and pray for each other, pray for the leaders, pray for the teachers, pray for each one of us to be strengthened in that inner person. He loved us before we loved him. And as we pray for these studies, make sure we're we're, we're praying this way. As we teach our children the love that Christ has for them, a love that surpasses all knowledge. As we pass this message on to faithful men, as Paul says to do to Timothy, and the result will be that the name of Jesus will be continually praised. He'll be praised in our words. He'll be praised in our actions. And he'll be praised in our hearts. Dear Heavenly Father, your word is profound. It is a blessing for us to have. We can know who you are. That we can know who we are. We thank you for Paul, Lord. We thank you for all that he went through in his service to you. And it was all because he loved you for what you did for him. May each one of us see that. May we continue to pray for each other. May we build each other up. May we pray for the strength of the inner man to be strengthened, Lord, that we can serve you, that we will not leave our first love, and that you will be glorified. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.